The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Exchange, a regular podcast brought to you by Reuters and Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the global editor of Breaking Views, and I hope you're having a healthy and restful summer. Knowing that many of you right now are probably relaxing someplace, maybe on a beach or in the mountains, I thought it would be a good time to sort of reflect and think about this extraordinary year of the pandemic. So I grabbed Dove Seidman for a bigger picture conversation on moral leadership. It's a subject that Dove has thought a lot about over the years. He's the founder of LRN, which advises global corporations on culture, governance, ethics, and other matters. Given the way that COVID-19 has drastically reshaped society's views about what we expect from our leaders in politics, business, and beyond, I thought it would be good to catch up with Dove and talk about this issue. As you'll hear from our conversation, there are a handful of important attributes to moral leadership, but three in particular stand out during times of crisis. First, cultivating a sense of hope for the future. Second, explaining decisions in context of purpose. And three, listening and learning. With that, please listen and learn from my conversation with Dove Seidman. So Dove, it's good to see you at least virtually. I hope you had a a decent pandemic. Where do I find you now? I seem to go from one hot spot to the next. I left New York City and I'm now in, in Florida. And uh, personally, I, I feel fortunate and blessed. I still have good health, as does my wife and two young children. And I'm here with my in-laws and I continue to be grateful to those on the front lines and all the essential workers who've just done everything they can to create some semblance of normal life. And obviously, heart continues to go out to all those who've been suffering and hurt and we've lost and these are tough times here we are zoom used to be a noun now it's a Mm -hmm. verb we we zoom and uh i think the term social distancing in many ways is unfortunate because uh, it's important to physically distant and but uh, aristotle was right several thousand years ago when he said that we are a social animal and our need to be social and find meaningful connection uh, is deep and enduring and we're all trying to find new ways to stay connected and lean into this and contribute and, and be social, but in new ways. And it's, it's been a, quite an adjustment. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, but, you know, we're, we're, we're able to be social if, if physically distanced with these kinds of technologies. And that it's, a, it's been amazing how much, how much productivity yeah. I've seen out there by lots of people, including, including you. You came up with this really interesting report that I thought we could talk about today, which you know, pinpoints the state of moral leadership in business. But I mean, you know, obviously this pandemic and the crisis itself has, has, has shown up or has put a spotlight on the question of leadership, not just at, yeah. at big businesses or at the United States government or the British uh, National Health Service, but, you know, right down to the local hospital, local community, local school. I mean, this is, this, everyone has had to step up and either be a good leader or, um, or, or flounder, but um, maybe just turning to, we could talk broadly about that, but you know, why don't we talk about your report and some of the founding, sure. findings that you... I mean, I agree with what you're conveying. I think this is the greatest leadership test of our times. And it's a leadership test for every sphere and every level and every dimension of leadership. The superintendents of schools, principals, mayors, governors, presidents, commanders and chiefs, uh, football coaches, uh, commissioners of sports leagues, uh, 
nobody is exempt from sitting down for this leadership test because the pandemic reveals, exposes, illuminates, and amplifies and accelerates everything we've been dealing with. And I, I think this is a great leadership test and we can talk about why, but we can start with, I've been studying leadership and working with leaders on their own leadership journeys because the number one job of a leader is to help foster a culture and a context where every participant in that culture is not just doing the next thing right, right, but, the next, right. But, but the next right thing. Uh, and if you're not just about how you use carrots and sticks to specify and guide people uh, to do the next thing right, but rather the next right thing, then you're going to obsess and focus on the principles and values that you have to share and scale so that everybody can do the next right thing over and over again. Uh, but I think the world has been reshaped to make doing the next right thing the imperative. And we, and, uh, especially as artificial intelligence uh, takes hold, uh, computers are going to be programmed to do the next things thing right. right. Yeah, they can do the, the thing right. Can they do it the right But only, thing only a human that. being has a heart and can do the next right thing. But we can talk about why that's the case. But what, so, but we manage what we measure. And if we want to move the needle, we have to, measure things. And, uh, and I felt that the report was a chance to contribute metrics and science and data to this leadership question. And it turns out that 86% of over the 2000 people that we uh, surveyed and then analyzed their results uh, evince a deep thirst and need for moral leadership. And moral leadership is not about moralizing or being moralistic or just taking a stand on a social or political issue moral leadership really goes down to the fundamental question of how you lead. And we can talk about the framework of that. But 86% of those surveyed said there's a thirst for it. 46% said they would take a pay cut to work for a moral leader. Uh, and at the same time, only 7%. So even though it's in high demand, it's in, it's in short supply, because only 7% report that their managers uh, are consistently showing the capacities and the dispositions and behaviors of moral leadership. Um, and uh, I think, uh, so big demand, so uh, short big supply. Big demand, uh, shortage of supply. Um, but I mean, that's maybe- In a time maybe, of, in, in a time of yeah. crisis, uh, right? When we need it the most. And, you know, I kind of think, do you remember the movie Jaws? Do I ever? Everybody. And I, okay, wh why was it scary? Of course, the music was scary. It was a brilliant movie, but we never saw the shark. Uh, mm -hmm. We saw the yellow barrels on top of the water. And I think we were extra scared because we didn't see this thing menacing our lives, right? And we tend to, when we thought in the movie that we're at war with the shark. Now, a tiny invisible pathogen has sent us into lockdown. Uh, and has really uh, created a crisis of unprecedented proportions. And we think we're at war uh, with the virus, but it's just an invisible pathogen. Hmm. In the movie Jaws, who was the villain? We thought it was the shark, but it turned out it was the mayor. Remember the mayor in Jaws who kept who the beach? made the bad decisions, kept the beach open. Exactly, because in times of crisis, when people are scared and on social media, fear and paranoia is being amplified and spread, including the vitriol that comes with it, what do people naturally do? They turn to those in charge. They turn to those with authority. And what do they want from them? They want the truth and nothing but the truth. If I am going to risk my life and, and make the sacrifices that you're asking me to make, I want the truth, however sobel. Angela Merkel was amazing on that. She was so truthful sure. with the German people saying, 70% of you might get this thing. But that was the truth. So people want the truth. They want bold action. They want guidance. 
and they want hope that we can get through this. In other words, they look to those in charge for moral leadership. Well, you, you, you talk a little bit about um, in this report, you, you, the, the qualities that make yeah. a moral leader. And mm -hmm. I mean, a couple of, I mean, maybe we could go through some of those yeah. right now. And sure. um, it might be helpful to just give a sense of, yeah, you know, we can talk about whether we're finding enough of them in the world yeah. later, but I mean, what, it, what would you, if you just sort of took that abstract, yeah. what would it look like? So before we jump in, let me just frame yeah. why moral leadership. Uh, listen, you and I both know that you cannot run a world without formal leadership, right? Uh, I can't imagine not sure. having a commander in chief, a company without a CEO, uh, right? Uh, without a head coach, without a principal. The world, any human system needs positions and roles of formal authority. Uh, but formal authority could be bestowed upon you. You could win in an election. You could seize it. A Silicon Valley entrepreneur could even lock it up with supermajority shares. Uh, but a human system really works when individuals with moral authority occupy positions of formal authority. And that's been revealed to be distinct. Uh, moral authority is, comes from who you are and how you lead, and it's earned uh, by those you lead. And I think right now we are seeing them is starkly different. We see those in charge and the formal authority they have, and the more formal authority they have, the more it's important that they lead with moral authority. Mm -hmm. uh, and it starts with humility. Uh, the, this is, we don't have all the answers. Um, people tend to tune in to Dr. Fauci because he says he doesn't know so often, so that when he does know something- uh, <laughs> they, it, it means something when he means, says that he's, yeah. That's so, uh, it starts with humility, the uh, asking the right questions, uh, collaborating with others, even your adversaries, even your political adversaries to say, you know what, we got to put politics aside because we have to coordinate and collaborate because the virus doesn't know uh, state lines. But if you step back one more step, look, what started as a health crisis exploded into a humanitarian crisis, then became an economic crisis and an unemployment crisis but it also became a moral crisis. And why do I say that? Because it presented vexing issues, uh, painful dilemmas. How do we balance lives and livelihoods? And uh, even though we were in this together in the first inning, we started to realize that we are not in this together in the same way. Some are being affected disproportionately. And now we're seeing that we have such lamentations and poignant calls for racial justice because historic and current inequality is being revealed as well. And these are the kinds of dynamics and issues that moral leaders uh, you know, lead around. And I think that uh, people turn to those in charge, but they want a certain kind of leadership, what I call moral leadership. And that means being in the grip and being animated by a purpose uh, that is considered worthy and noble and not self-regarding, but associated with a better world, human progress. So being rooted in a purpose. And I think that those who are doubling down and rerouting in their purpose, because right now people are looking at leaders and saying, what do you stand for? What do we stand for? It's being put to the test. Is this company yeah. about profits? Are we prepared? If we don't put people ahead of profits now, when are we ever going to do that? It's also about how you inspire others. Uh, are the conversations truly two-way? Are you trusting people with the truth? Are you being principled in all decisions, even if it's inconvenient, even if it's going to cost us something to be principled? Are you prepared to do that? Um, are you prepared to wrestle with issues of justice and inequality and inclusion and, and right and wrong and, and build your moral muscle uh, in how you wrestle? 
And uh, are you a purveyor of hope? Uh, not just optimism, but true hope. And I think those who put more trust in the world and more truth in the world that we can share are the ones who are going to be remembered. Well, you, you mentioned Angela Merkel with her very, yeah. the, the, the Chancellor of Germany was quite straightforward at the start. Yes. I think that's, that's certainly, um, when you look at the, the, the way that Germany has handled the pandemic, you, you can't help but think there is some connection to that. Yes. I mean, what, one thing just, you know, th there has been, even before COVID-19, yes. Um, you know, appeared on our radar earlier this year, there had been this move towards purpose-driven yes. business, purpose-driven leadership as well. It had to be part of that when you think of the way um, the business roundtable had come out yeah. forward, you know, it said, we're not just about shareholders, we're about stakeholder capitalism. And, yeah. and that, that had been a couple of years in the, in the making. So, you know, what, what, what do you think has changed in, in, in that, let's say that trend towards stakeholder or more inclusive capitalism? The pandemic, has it just has it just accelerated that that requirement that we move there? Or is it has it retarded that 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 movement? What I mean, what is your sense of, of yeah. how it's? Affected? I think you've used Rob uh, the right word. Uh, I think that there were unfamiliar and unprecedentedly powerful forces that were not just rapidly changing the world; they were dramatically reshaping it. The world operates differently. Uh, it's interdependent. Uh, one tweet, uh, the actions of one person far away can affect so many others in ways they could before. We've gone from an interconnected world a generation ago to an interdependent world where we rise and fall together. We are seeing not just with x-ray vision, but MRI vision into the inner workings of companies. I mean, when, when Sony got hacked a handful of years ago, we saw into the attitudes around race of, of those in charge. And now we see into the inner workings of boardrooms and shop floors of pretty much every company. And guess what? Employees are, you know, Susan Fowler wrote a memo a few years ago about uh, gender equality and, 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 uh, and diversity uh, at Uber. And that changed the entire conversation in Silicon Valley, for example. Uh, we're also morally activated and aroused like never before. Uh, more people on more days are uh, are seeing the world in terms of right and wrong, good or bad, sustainable, unsustainable, responsible or not. And unfortunately, sometimes that just expresses itself with a very blunt binary action, a, a hashtag, a boycott, or a, or a tearing down of a statute, which might have its merits uh, when we really need to pause and, and have the conversation to bring everybody along. Uh, but we've never been in a world where more people on more days are so morally activated. And those trends, I mean, leadership, Rob, is not about headlines. It's about trend lines. It's about where's the world moving towards? How is it uh, being reshaped and passing judgment on the future? And if you're a business that used to think that the business of business is business and that you have duties and responsibilities to just one stakeholder, uh, the shareholder, uh, I think the world has been reshaped because right now, social, political, environmental, religious, ethical, moral, human issues are now inescapably part of the business agenda because the world has become fused. You can't just say we're a business and society's over there. The business of business is now society and that was happening. And I think that's why we got the proclamation from the business roundtable and why in, in Davos earlier this year, it was renamed as stakeholder capitalism. Now, there is enlightened stakeholder capitalism where it's still about the shareholder. And you say, if we treat our people better, and if we think long-term, our shareholders will make more money. But there, every stakeholder is still a means to, every, to the shareholder's ends. 
in stakeholder capitalism, in true stakeholder capitalism, every member of the ecosystem, every supplier, every employee, every shareholder, every member of the community is a co-equal, essential, valued member. And nobody is a means to anybody's ends. Did you and call I, it enlightened shareholder capitalism? Is that well, the and, first and, point? And then this is true stakeholder capital. Yes, this there's shareholder, yeah. there's shareholder primacy. There's a, there, then there's enlightened shareholder primacy. Right, okay. Okay, and then there's true stakeholder capitalism. Mm -hmm. And guess what? Everybody's calling for a 1.0 and 2.0. Uh, we can just go back and do uh, capitalism 1.0 more properly. The, the founder of modern capitalism was Adam Smith. He was not an economist. He was the chairman of the moral philosophy department at Glasgow University when he wrote the capitalistic manifesto, The Wealth of Nations. Uh, and capitalism always worked best uh, when it was designed to keep a balance and an equilibrium among all stakeholders where, tr where high trust was the best currency of it. And you only needed regulation against excesses, but you really wanted to scale system where humanity and, and, uh, and mutuality was at the center. So I think that the, that the pandemic has accelerated what was already happening. I mean, at the end of last year, the word existential was word of the year, which means more people believed that we were dealing with ex existential issues like climate, like whether capitalism works, like inequality of income in society. But climate, you could still spectate around. You could watch a hurricane over there and a tornado over there. But the pandemic hit everybody simultaneously at the same time. Indiscriminately, then, everybody. Indiscriminately. But now yeah. we're starting to realize, but not equally. Some are faring better and some really uh, are struggling. And I believe that some businesses, because they have a heart, the values of empathy, empathy and compassion that they manifested so boldly to save people beautifully, including pivoting their businesses to make masks and ventilators and uh, hand sanitizers. What businesses have done and gone through to save people has been remarkable and shown a huge heart. But now the question is, are you gonna take what you brought to the table to save people? And are you gonna to pivot to serving people and society in new ways? Or when this is over, are you gonna go back to selling things to people and to old capitalism? And I think that we're at this moment that whatever animated the best businesses and leaders to save lives, they can now, you know, in basketball, uh, this, uh, this notion of pivot. When you pivot, you take one foot and put it and you announce, this is my turf, this is my space, this is who I am and what I stand for. This is our purpose, these are our values. And I think that the pandemic has given people a chance to really pause and reflect on who they are, what they stand for. And then you take just the other foot and you point it in a new direction. And I think that those who realize that people have been forever changed by this and our expectations have been heightened, uh, if those who pivot towards serving society and people in new ways are going to be the ones who lead lead in the future. And what I mean, let's think about this a little bit yeah. about the, the 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 political spectrum. I mean, if you look at, we've now got a you've got an election yeah. in four months in the United yes. States. I mean, how has the response, whether it's local government, whether it's state government and federal government? And how is it going to shape the view about what we want in, let's just say, the presidential leader of the United States of America? You know, I, I think, uh, and this is an opinion, uh, in crisis, uh, the playbook is truth, 
it's trust, it's respect, it's bring us together, it's hope. It, it's not fault, you know, optimism is good only if it's justified. If the facts allow me to be optimistic, I'll be optimistic. If the data says uh, uh, it's positive, let's be positive. But hope means inspiring us to be our best, to show us ways in which we can pull through together. Uh, and I think that's, that's the playbook. And uh, it means being transcendent. It means collaborating and coordinating with everybody because we're in it together. For some people, being in it together is a slogan. Others are going to give that true meaning. They're going to make sacrifices. If they're doing layoffs, they're giving up their pay. Uh, some are going to give true meaning to what it means to be in something together. Uh, Chip Berg, the CEO of Levi, I mean, uh, they shut down their stores in China and in the U.S. before they had to, before it became mandated, because right. that was a sacrifice, because they cared and they loved their people. I think the way Brian Chesky at Airbnb, when their business literally came to a halt, went, went about reaffirming that love is their core value and they are going to do everything with love, including they're going to be loving and how they let go of 25% of their people, but how they're going to care for them afterwards. Um, I think you've seen some real uh, exemplary leadership. You've seen it. I've mentioned Merkel. We've seen it from the prime yeah. minister of, uh, uh, of New Zealand, but those yeah. who put humanity at the center of their endeavors um, are really leading. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think it's going to have an impact. I mean, I, I think when we get yeah. to the polls in the United States, people are going to, they're, yeah. they're going to be thinking differently than they would have thought before about because, what it, who it is they're voting for on any level. And I'm not just talking about Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. Well, because their lives are, in, their kids are in their lives of a school principal like never before to keep their children safe. Right. I mean, we've, our lives have never been in, in the hands of those in charge at every level of society, from school principals to superintendents to mayors, governors, presidents, and CEOs. And we are going to look at leadership through that new lens. Who is serving him or herself or who is really there to serve uh, their followers in, in that way? I think what Darren, and also who wants to change things more deeply? Uh, corona has revealed truths uh, that were really deep down that are now on the surface. You know, Martin Luther King, when, when he talked about philanthropy, he said, listen, philanthropy is commendable, giving, giving back, incredibly commendable. But you know what's more commendable? Working on the injustices and the inequalities in the system that has made the need for philanthropy needed in the first place. So you see somebody like Darren Walker at the Ford Foundation say, I have limits to how much I could give every year. So he just came together with Morgan Stanley and some other banks, and they issued a billion dollar bond so that he can make a difference right now in a bold way. And we've never seen a nonprofit organization put out a billion dollar bond to respond to the moment in such an emphatic way. That's that's leadership. It's yeah. Netflix saying we could be philanthropic or we could start to funnel money to local banks so that they could lend to uh, African-American people now. Uh, that's making a structural change in how your business operates that goes above and beyond being philanthropic, for example, yeah. even though yeah. philanthropy is commendable. Now, I mean, just sort of taking this to the next, the next sort of crisis, um, you know, a year ago, or let's say yeah, Davos, so, you know, people yeah. were talking about existential threat. And that was really climate change that people were talking about. And in a sense, the pandemic, you could say, is a sort of, it's a sort of dry run 
if you will. I mean, I wouldn't call it that because it's been quite, quite uh, tragic across the world. But, you know, this is something that eventually will, we will find some way to live with it. We yeah. will find a, maybe a vaccine almost, you know, that seems very likely. And then we can move on. Whereas climate change is not something where there's an easy technological fix. There's nothing. I mean, that's one of the sort of great weaknesses of leaders on climate change to say, oh, we'll just fix it with technology. We know we're not. We're going to have to get to the root problem, which is, um, which is a, so a little bit like what you're talking here. I mean, how do you think we can apply the lessons from the pandemic, the leadership lessons from the pandemic to this, this you know, existential uh, threat of climate change, which maybe you and I will, will only marginally see, but we know our children will and our grandchildren will and our great-grandchildren will. Well, uh, just like we care about people today, if we don't just see this as climate, but how we lead with respect to future generations, our grandchildren, uh, unborn people, then we'll want to treat them fairly too, right? So I think we have to define climate in terms of our relationship to people, uh, the future. And are we mortgaging and robbing them of, of, of a future? And can they have a present as good as our past has been? Or are we prepared to uh, continue to indulge in the present and sacrifice their future? So I think defining it in terms of our relationship to the next generations uh, is really important. Uh, but the other is to also point out that one of the things we've learned is there is a lot of resource in the world, but we don't have many how much problems. Uh, every uh, few weeks, uh, $2 trillion right, came, right. Out of, came out of Congress. There is enough money and resource and people to solve most of our problems. What's holding us back is not the how much, it's the how. It's the how we come together. It's how we deal with the forces that are dividing us, how uh, we're allowing um, social media to be monetized and weaponized to, we've been divided before, but we've never been so actively divided, uh, pit against each other, where we don't see the humanity in the other or what we have in common with them. Uh, so I actually think this is also a leadership challenge because the answers to everything holding us back is really a how question and a how answer. How do we lead? How do we operate? How do we relate to society? How do we relate to the environment? How do we relate to future generations? Now, if you accept that the world is interdependent, that we rise and fall together, then there's only one strategy to, to thrive in an interdependent world. We could either fall together or we can rise together, right? So, and yeah. the only way we can rise together is if we share values and share truths. Because if human beings don't share values and truths, irrespective of their borders, they will not rise together. Uh, and how do you create healthy interdependencies so we rise together? It's by sharing sustainable values. And what values sustain human relationships? Trust, truth, respect, right? Uh, integrity. And, uh, and instead of just scaling our business and our business products and models, we have to scale values. That's the only, uh, only when we can scale shared values uh, can we thrive in an interdependent world where the few and the uh, uh, can really uh, help us fall together when we need to rise together. Well, I'm glad you sound hopeful, Dove. I mean, you don't say, you know, you do, you're, you're proposing solutions. Um, amidst of pretty difficult moments. I hope, I hope people listen to that. Well, well, I'm hopeful because hope, uh, I've, all, I've learned, I learned this from uh, Elie Wiesel, that hope is a verb. Hope is your disposition. Uh, optimism has to be rooted in data and science, but hope is um, a search for meaning. 
it's, uh, you know, I'm in my 50s and I'm a 50-some-year-old uh, millennial. Uh, I, I, we, we, we tend, I'm hopeful because look at, uh, look at how broad-based the protests are these days. Uh, look how broad they are and how global they are. There, there is an awakening in the Generation Z and the millennials. But Rob, uh, millennials didn't invent meaning. What they've invented is the insistence on getting meaning where they get a paycheck, meaning at work. They want to right. feel using. You want meaning, I want meaning. But we came of age at a time where we were told we can get a paycheck here and meaning over there. We're now, I think there's more evidence that the next generation thinks that we're in a fused world. It's all one. And there needs to be uh, every organization that they affiliate with and, uh, has to stand for something and, and serve in new ways. So I'm hopeful on this insistence that we don't go to the outer reaches to find meaning and probity, but that meaning starts to permeate uh, the very places where we work and our communities. And you have to be hopeful. Well, I think it, when I look at your, the, 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 um, the, need, the, the need for moral leadership that your survey turned up was quite interesting to me because I, again, I'm a Gen X like you, I guess, Dove, and, yeah. and I grew, I didn't even think about the, yeah. you know, the moral question of my leadership of my first job or my second job or any of that. And, and now it is certainly part of what I have to do as a leader with my group, with my team, it, however small it may be. Um, I guess that is, that is something that, that is completely changed from over the past, let's say 20, you know, two, two decades totally or, or more. And that does, I guess that should give us, as you say, hope. And I'll get, here's one more imperative. You know, uh, if you put a product on sale, uh, you'll probably buy more, not less, or now, not later. If you watch a, an effective political attack ad, you'll vote left, not right, or right, not left 30 seconds later. We are very good at shifting behavior. If you give me enough carrots and sticks, I could get an employee to work 10 hours and not eight and get you to go faster. But if you want to elevate another human being, not just shift them, but elevate them to, to help them do the right thing, to be compassionate, to be inclusive, to be more conscientious, uh, elevating somebody uh, is not, you could triple people's salaries and it's not going to elevate them. What elevates individuals is when they're part of something bigger than themselves, when they work at a place where there's a purpose that at Thanksgiving dinner, they want to brag to their cousins and those they haven't seen in a long time saying, let me tell you what my company stands for and how we pulled through together. So, it, so the kind of leaders who elevate others are moral leaders because the endeavor is in larger terms. It's more noble. They elevate others because they create equal and fair and uh, truthful shared environments. They elevate others because of their own character and, and how they act. And they elevate others because they're humble. And they, don't, they ask questions when others want to just supply the dogmatic answer. So I actually think if the imperative is to elevate others, you know, doing the next thing right, I can shift for that. Doing the next right thing, that's elevated conduct. If that's the imperative, which it is, uh, then we need moral leaders because that's what they do. They elevate others. All right. Well, thanks, Doug. Good to talk to you. And uh, what do you, what's the first thing you're going to do when you, when you, you know, officially can venture forth and do whatever you like? Is there like one thing that's on your list? Oh, I, I don't know. Put some gathering together when it's safe. I, I'd like to be with my, my friends and colleagues and uh, be together and just sit there. Uh, I've, I want to, I want to pause in a group, you know, uh, you know, uh, 
Emerson said that in the pause, we hear the call. And I think the most human thing that we can do is to pause because when we pause, we can uh, reflect on what we've been through. We can rethink some of our assumptions and those that need to change. We can uh, reconnect with others, but we can also reimagine uh, a better path ahead. Uh, I'm a big proponent of pausing, uh, but I look forward to a group pause where together yeah. in a room, we reflect on what have we been through? Uh, how do we redesign? How do we come out of this different? How do we not waste this crisis? What, how do we want to be uh, differently on the next next phase of this? And, uh, a party with a pause. I think that's what we're... A, a, par we're a, par a pausing in stride. A party with a pause. That's a good one. <laughs> well, thanks a lot, Doug. It's great to talk to you. Likewise. That's our show for this week. Thanks to Doug for his time. And as always, hats off to Freddie Joyner, our producer in New York. Please subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast fixes. Check us out every day at breakingviews.com. And don't forget to tune in next week for another edition. Have a super summer.